This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, Brian McClanahan here. Are you looking for a great website that gives you history the way it was intended to be told? With no PC, no Marxism, no progressivism. Well, I've got it for you. It's learntruehistory.com. That's learntruehistory.com. Learn history from great professors who don't sugarcoat it for you. This is not for your delicate flowers. That's learntruehistory.com. Learntruehistory.com. This is The Brian McClanahan Show. Back to the Brian McClanahan Show. This is episode 83. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Going to try to get back to my twice a week schedule this week. So we're podcasting here on Tuesday and hope you're back on Thursday as well. But before we do that, before we get started, I'd like to uh, make sure to remind you to go out there and like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, like my YouTube page. You can find me on Facebook at Brian McClanahan, same thing at Twitter at Brian McClanahan, and same thing at uh, YouTube. So go on out there and do that. Also, if you want to keep in touch with me, go on to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com, and that's Brian with an O, and you can give me an email address, and you'll get on my email list. You also get a free ebook and free audiobook for doing that. You'll get a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, along with the audiobook companion, read by yours truly. So go on out there and get that stuff, too. I'll send you an email here and there, and also, you're going to want to be on the email list when the promotions are ready for my forthcoming How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America. So uh, that will be probably in the next two weeks, I think. Uh, probably by the middle of June, all that stuff will be ready to go. And uh, you'll be ready. You'll be able to get the promotions. I've had a couple emails. How do I get the book? Well, wait. You're going to go out to a web page that I have set up, and you're going to be able to uh, submit some information, and you'll get the promotions. Um, and it's going to be some stuff you're going to want. So uh, wait for pre-order. Uh, the book comes out September 18th um, at bookstores everywhere, online. And uh, you'll be hearing a lot more about it beforehand, but also, of course, when the book comes out as well. So uh, think about that. Uh, look uh, look forward to, uh, to the book coming out. There's a lot of great stuff. It's not just about Hamilton. It's also about jo- uh, John Marshall, Joseph Story, and Hugo Black and their impact on America today. So um, this is not a book uh, designed to be simply a takedown of Hamilton's uh, mercantilist theory or uh, anything like that. This is a book that looks at Hamilton's constitutional machinations and how he said one thing when he was arguing for ratification and then did another once he got into government. And so uh, it's Hamilton versus Hamilton and Marshall versus Marshall who did the exact same thing and then how Story and Black kind of ran with those things. So um, it's going to be a, a real takedown of the nationalist myth in American history, starting with Alexander Hamilton. So you're going to want to read it, and uh, it'll be a lot of fun. 
Okay, speaking of nationalists and those who tried to take down the nationalists, uh, I thought it would be fun today to talk about uh, John Randolph of Roanoke. Now, Randolph's birthday was last week. Uh, Same thing with uh, Patrick Henry. And so I thought it would be an interesting podcast to do about Randolph, seeing that I I like to do historical themes. Uh, Randolph is fitting. A lot of people may not know about John Randolph. Of course, the, the circles in which I... I uh, have colleagues, we're all familiar with John Randolph, but maybe listeners of this podcast don't know John Randolph very well, or have really never heard of him. Uh, of course, for a, for a little while, back in the, I would say probably the, the 90s, Randolph became a little more popular. He's always been popular with conservatives, um, particularly since Russell Kirk wrote about him in The Conservative Mind back in the 1950s. And then, of course, Kirk produced a biography, which included a large number of his um, letters and speeches. So conservatives have known about John Randolph. There's a John Randolph Society and a John Randolph Club and, and other things. So, uh, But maybe libertarians don't know about Randolph, but they should. Um, you know, Randolph uh, is someone that we could all look at and look to and say, this, this guy really knew what he was talking about when it came to ideas on government and society. Uh, John Randolph was, uh, in many ways, the quintessential Virginian, and Virginia produced the best statesman in American history, by far. Uh, You you cannot find another state that produced the type, the quality of statesman that Virginia did in the early federal period and the colonial period. There are great statesmen from other states, but Virginia produced so many. And what's interesting about that, um, there was actually a, a, uh, an interesting book written about this by Charles Sidnor uh, entitled American Revolutionaries in the Making. And uh, one of the points he makes in this book is that Virginia was able to produce such great statesmen because it was aristocratic. And that's kind of the focus I want to have with uh, John Randolph. John Randolph uh, was wonderful when it comes to things like foreign policy. Uh, he was a non-interventionist, though he did support the War of 1812. In fact, uh, <laughs> he, um, he hated the fact that New England was basically committing treason by trying to stay out of the war. Uh, though he, um, uh, he didn't think the embargo was a good idea uh, during the Jefferson administration, broke with the administration over that. Uh, and a number of other interesting policy positions. You know, Randolph was a purist. Uh, he didn't trust John C. Calhoun because he thought Calhoun was not a purist. He thought Calhoun was an opportunist, kind of like Henry Clay. And, of course, when Randolph died, he wanted to be buried facing west so he could keep his eye on Henry Clay um, and fought a duel with Henry Clay. And all of those things are wonderful. You know, Randolph had such great one-liners. You know, one of the things that, uh, one of my favorite one-liners, he was in debate with a, with a young congressman, and uh, this, this guy, this congressman, was well-known as being a, a clock uh, repairman. And uh, Randolph apparently said, you, Sir, you know your tick-ticks, but not your tactics. And, uh, you know, things like that. You just don't have that. Of course, Randolph suffered from a condition where he never reached puberty. Um, he, he, um, so he had a very high soprano voice, never had to shave. Um, so he was very eccentric, went into the Congress with his dogs and his slaves uh, though Randolph was also against slavery um, and manumented uh, his slaves upon his death. 
and was in favor of colonization because he, he wasn't sure uh, if slavery ended what race relations would be like in America with large numbers of free uh, freedmen. Uh, and he thought that the best policy would be to remove them and send them back to Africa. And this was, this was popular with James Monroe and um, even Abraham Lincoln. Uh, uh, Henry Clay supported it. So this is one area where they had uh, common ground. And, um, you know, I think Randolph uh, thought that uh, Henry Clay was, was a smart guy. It's just that, again, he had problems in his political philosophy. Uh, you know, Randolph uh, had a very famous quote uh, where he said, uh, quote, um, I am an aristocrat. I love liberty. I hate equality. That's what I want to focus on for this particular podcast. When you look at wealthy people today in America today, and we have a lot of them, and we have, we have uh, uh, billionaires. And of course, when you look at uh, wealth in the, uh, in the 18th century, in the 19th century, it was different. You had, uh, as Richard Weaver has pointed out with Randolph and uh, Henry David Thoreau, uh, you had different types of individuals. Uh, you had people like Thoreau, who would cut himself off some, from society. And uh, essentially, when you would look at Walden, the experiment there, and what Thoreau wanted to do uh, it was removal. What, what Randolph wanted to do was engage and I think this fits very nicely in with the idea of, you know, think locally, act locally. One of the things that uh, people need to do is engage on a local level where you can have an impact. Now, Randolph was making an impact at the general government, at the, at the federal level. But he did also engage at the state level. One of his more famous speeches actually was made in the 1829 state uh, constitutional convention where he gave his King Numbers speech. Uh, which was one of the finest speeches he ever gave. And uh, so he was engaging on the state and local level as well, and that's because Randolph was tied to the land. I mean, Virginia, as it was with so many Virginians, was in his blood and bones. He was, he was a Virginian first and foremost. Same thing with Thomas Jefferson. I mean, Jefferson is, uh, was his cousin, in fact, and um, he's... Jefferson achieved the status of president and vice president and, of course, secretary of state. Randolph never did any of those things uh, because of, uh, probably because of Randolph's eccentricities, but um, more, I think, uh, because Randolph wanted to be the opposition more than anything else. So when you look at at, uh, Randolph, he was actually related to the Bland family, and the Bland family... Uh, as one of the more important uh, families in Virginia, not as well known as Jefferson or Randolph, but the Blands, uh, particularly when you look at their remarks on the ratification of the Constitution, uh, were very much against it. Uh, and uh, uh, these were just such important statesmen as well. Um, and um, Kevin Goodsman's, uh, uh, his uh, his book on Virginia is just fantastic because it brings out the Blands. Uh, and also the Tuckers, you know, uh, John Randolph's uh, stepfather was was St. George Tucker, who was one of the great constitutional scholars, the first real constitutional scholar. And then, of course, his stepbrothers, uh, Henry St. George Tucker and uh, N.B. Tucker, uh, were fantastic writers and also constitutional scholars. Uh, Nathaniel Beverly Tucker uh, was a great writer. Um, but Henry St. George Tucker... Uh, 
again, one of the leading constitutional scholars. And um, so you have uh, this, this great line of uh, Virginian statesmen. And, and Randolph was known as John Randolph of Roanoke because of his plantation. So Randolph's occupation was planter. And that's a different type of rich guy. You know, so we have, we have rich guys, right? You have rich guys that go out and they make money on stocks and commerce and trade or manufacturing. And then you have rich guys that are planters. And it's a different type of aristocracy. The guy that goes out and makes money on stocks and bonds and commercial interaction and things like that. He's what the Virginians called a paper jobber. He shuffles paper to make money. In other words, there's nothing tangible to his wealth. He makes money because uh, he's able to conduct transactions. Now, in modern American society, this is how we think that people should make wealth. Uh, I mean, look at someone like Jeff Bezos at Amazon. Essentially, he's a merchant. That's what he's made his money doing, selling things. Uh, You look at someone like Bill Gates. Now, Bill Gates is not a paper jobber. Bill Gates produced a product. He's a manufacturer. He produced a product that sold billions upon billions of copies and made a lot of money doing that. Software. And so it's a, it's a manufacturer. You don't find very many planters anymore. People that become filthy, stinking rich because they are tied to the land. But that's what Randolph was. And that's essentially what all of these men were. The Tuckers, the Blands, the Randolphs, the Jeffersons, Madison, Monroe. I mean, take your pick, George Washington. These people were different. They were making their money on the land. And that's a different type of aristocrat. Because you're tied to something, because your feet are planted firmly somewhere, Uh, And you can find this all over the South when you look at these great statesmen from the South and why they were different. You know, uh, when you look at the cosmopolitan nature of, say, Thomas Jefferson, who was, uh, in many ways, a cosmopolitan, but he was a cosmopolitan tied to the land of Virginia. He wasn't a worldly man like Benjamin Franklin, who was a different type of cosmopolitan. Franklin was a man of the world. Jefferson was a man of Virginia. And so that idea of think locally, act locally was just within them because of who they were and what they had. Everything was real to them because it affected their country, and their country was Virginia or maybe even their plantation. You know, Randolph preferred to be at his plantation, Roanoke, over anywhere else. Uh, one of my favorite uh, stories about a planter is Nathaniel Macon of North Carolina, who only left his plantation about once a month if he wasn't in D.C., Checked his mail once a month. That's it. I mean, can you imagine? Uh, he, he had a chapel on his plantation. He had everything he needed on his plantation. He was self-sufficient. He didn't have to go anywhere. He left his country, which was his plantation, once a month. Now, how many people could do that today and have everything they need right there? But these men could do that. And that created a different type of aristocrat. Uh and they were, they were well aware of this. As Sidnor pointed out, um, these men were so aristocratic, they were interested in liberty. And that is an interesting thesis, and I think one that you should, the, the uh, 
the book, American Revolutionaries in the Making, uh, the final chapter really gets into this. You know, it's, it's entitled From the 18th to the 20th, and how it looks at where you could find real examples of true liberty in America, and that was in Virginia. These men who were so aristocratic, everything in Virginia, the, 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 uh, all of the political offices came from the top down. And uh, they, they were so aristocratic that they ensured that liberty was protected because that protected them, you see. Whereas in South Carolina, where it was much more democratic, there was much less liberty in South Carolina. And of course, you had a, a Tucker line in South Carolina as well. You had the Virginia Tuckers and the South Carolina Tuckers, both of whom were great families. But in Virginia, where you had less liberty... Less, I'm sorry, less democracy, you had more liberty. And to us today, that would be a paradox, you know, uh, something that just didn't make any sense. Wait a second, you're saying that there's less democracy, there's more liberty. We think that there's less democracy, there's less liberty. In Virginia, what they proved is that the less democracy you have, oftentimes the more liberty you have, because they are so jealous in protecting it, because it affects them, those who want liberty. This is why Randolph gave his very famous King Numbers speech, where he warned against the mob. Virginia was going through a process by which it was updating its constitution, and there was an, a, a, an attempt made, and it was successful, to enlarge the suffrage, to have more men vote in Virginia, and Randolph was completely against it, as were most of the older conservative planters in, in the Tidewater region of Virginia the oldest part of the state. And uh, his, his speech was just amazing in some of the things he said. And he made, made this speech in 1829. Uh, but one of the things he said, in, in looking forward, he said, look, there's this, and I'm paraphrasing, there's a strange belief today that government should do things for you. He said, I, I can't understand it. Uh, and he's saying this in 1829, that the more things, you know, people want government to do more and more for them, this is a very odd thing to want. And it's a trend of the day. And this is where he led, led to his uh, talk about how the mob, meaning democracy, is going to destroy liberty. Because they just consume. There's nothing there. The mob has no tie to property, has nothing to protect it's all theory. And because of the fact that these men are not aristocrats, because they debase themselves, because they go to the lowest common denominator, you have problems in society because of that. And look at what's happening with the mob today. This is what we get with our modern presidents. They appeal to the lowest common denominator, and they appeal to people to vote for them because of the stuff they will give them. This is why uh, you know, people like George Mason opposed an elected king. This is why Alexander Hamilton said, look, we should just have an elected king because this is what we're going to get eventually, so just get it now. Just say we're going to have a king now because this is what we really want. And we're going to have an elected one. Of course, George Mason was shocked. No, an elected king is the worst because they just appeal to the masses, and it creates a demagogue. 
And if you look at the past administration, that's what we had. We had a demagogue. That's what Barack Obama really was, more than anything else. He appealed to king numbers. So Randolph, as this aristocrat, a man who would dress differently than the rest, who would make these long, rambling speeches that uh, may have been you know, given under the influence of opium uh, because he suffered tremendous pain. But regardless, he gave these long, rambling speeches that were so detailed in their learning. You know, Randolph was privately tutored. Uh, so were many of the uh, Virginians. He was well-versed in Greek and Roman history, English history, and law. Uh, when you look at his speeches, they're saturated with these type of references. He was an aristocrat, through and through, but an aristocrat who ensured that liberty would be maintained. And I think that when we find what we find today in wealthy people, first of all, one of the things that the 60s did in America, and this is kind of a why we have this, the 1960s made it popular for wealthy people to not want to be wealthy. This is why we started wearing blue jeans, because it was a fake appeal to the proletariat. Blue jeans were not worn by anyone of status until the 1960s, and now you see rich guys walking around in ripped shorts and flip-flops. Even American fashion has reflected the trend of democracy. Wear a t-shirt and shorts, wear your flip-flops, and I think, you know, just about everyone is is guilty of this, you know, wearing a t-shirt and shorts out or, you know, flip-flops or sandals or things of that nature. You know, this is what this is what people do now in fashion. And particularly, I mean, even people of the of the wealthy elite. Now, but the wealthy elite today did not get their wealth I mean, if you look at the political class, for example, the Clintons, the Clintons are only popular because they achieved political office. John Randolph was who he was before he even took office, and that so were the Tuckers, so were the Blands and the Randolphs and the Jeffersons. There was someone in Washington and Madison and Monroe. I mean, take your pick in Virginia. There was someone before they ever achieved any type of political office. And if they didn't have political office, they would just go back home to their plantation and be perfectly happy being at home. And today we don't have that. Uh, the Obamas are only anything because they were elected to office. Barack Obama would be nothing if he was never president. He'd be nothing, a nobody. Michelle Obama the same way. They would be a you know, low-level attorney somewhere, maybe, maybe even a high-level attorney. Who knows? Uh, you know, Obama's supposed to be a constitutional scholar. He might have been some type of hotshot attorney somewhere. I, I beg to differ. But... Uh, he he's only being able to uh, extort hundreds of thousands of dollars for a speech because he was president, or extort uh, you know hundreds of thousands of dollars or a million dollars plus for a book contract because he was president. That was it. And so uh, you know Obama and and the Clintons and the Bushes, uh, you know the Bushes are the same way. This is not partisan. These people are from the political class. You know, Paul Ryan. Who would Paul Ryan be if he wasn't Speaker of the House? He would be a nobody. But John Randolph, a man, a planter, would have been somebody if he had never been 
an important figure in the American Congress. And so that is one of the major differences. That's why we have different aristocrats. These planters meant something. We lost something in America when we lost the ability for the agrarian class to actually become very wealthy and prominent and powerful in American society. We haven't had that in a very long time. Now we have the merchant class. We have the commercial class. And it's a different type of cosmopolitan. It's a different type of rich guy. You make money selling things. You're not tied to anything. You're not independent. A planter was independent. They could survive on their plantation without the need of government. A merchant, when they have a lot of money, of course, now when they stock up, they're going to be okay. But what if people stop buying things? What if the economy goes south? You need people to buy stuff to make money. A merchant, an industrialist. And so their type of uh, independence is much different. And their type of aristocracy, because of that, is much different. And so, you know, when you look at, uh, at Randolph and the aristocrat that he was, these are the kind of people we still need in society. These are the kind of statesmen we still need in society. And the only way to do it, I think, is for people to start engaging in independent tactics, trying to become more self-sufficient, uh, trying to get off of the, uh, the system, so to speak. This doesn't mean you have to go out and, and uh, you know, come off the grid. Uh, but to become more independent, become more financially independent, more physically independent, and to not need things as much. Uh, you don't need uh, any help from uh, the government in particular. Uh, but when you have that independence, you become very dangerous uh, for the political class because you don't need them. And, and then, of course, you can really think locally and act locally. And so Randolph, I mean, we could go through and talk, as I mentioned in the beginning, we could talk about his ideas on foreign policy, on domestic policy. We could look at his speeches in detail. But it was more about what Randolph represented as a Virginian, as a planter, as a statesman, as an aristocrat, that we should be looking at Randolph as an important figure in liberty because liberty at its core is independence. And if you don't have that independence, you can never achieve true liberty. And so I would encourage not just conservatives who might listen to this podcast, but also libertarians, if you're not familiar with John Randolph, go out uh, and pick up, uh, you know, uh, uh, there's plenty of older biographies of John Randolph uh, online for free. Um, if you go to uh, abbevaleinstitute.org and you just do a search for John Randolph, there are a number of articles on John Randolph, and you can read about who Randolph was and, and uh, why he was important. Uh, and so go out and, and immerse yourself in John Randolph. Uh, the only other person I could think that would be just as good to read, uh, a contemporary, would be uh, you know John Taylor of Caroline, uh, also... Uh, if you read uh, St. George Tucker and his uh, views on the Constitution, I mean, these are people that should be read. Uh, Spencer Rowan, uh, these Virginians were so important. And, of course, um, in How Alexander, How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, I, I bring out some of these Virginians, Tucker and, and Rowan. 
uh, among others. But go out there and read about John Randolph and, and, and understand his conception of liberty. It was a different conception than what we have, but it's an important conception of liberty. It's an important conception of liberty because of the fact that uh, it was an independence that created this view on liberty. And he didn't want any overarching structure to control him. He didn't need it. He had Roanoke. And so tip your hat to John Randolph on his birthday, which is uh, June 2nd every year. Understand that John Randolph, more, I mean, just as much as Jefferson, uh, you know, we often look at who were the first in the founding generation or beyond to be uh, the progenitors of the modern liberty movement. Of course, Randolph is not part of the founding generation. He's, this, he's born a little bit too late for that. Uh, but he was certainly a major figure uh, in the early Congresses, and of course in Virginia itself. Uh, just an important guy. Uh, died at, at a young age, 60, uh, of tuberculosis. But um, someone who we should all pay attention to uh, because of his uh, views on government, society, foreign policy, but more than anything else, because of who he was as a man in terms of his, uh, his stance on life and society. I'll see you next time on The Brian McClain.